Today's reading is John 7, 37 through 52. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will, fro- will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The word of the Lord. So all this year, we've been studying the Gospel of John. And and as I've noted before, that one thing you notice is that John just sees things in his own way. Not in any sense totally different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Those are called the synoptics because they see things with each other, but, but John has his own perspective. It's complementary. And one of John's focuses is how Jesus isn't just the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That's something that we see clearly in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. But how Jesus fulfills, supersedes, and transforms those symbols. This is something latent within Matthew and Mark and Luke. But, but what is background in those Gospels, John brings to the foreground. Especially when it comes to the temple and the Jewish feasts. And this makes sense because John begins, The Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled, templed among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of God full of grace and truth. And so what John wants us to not miss is that Jesus is the reality of what the signs of the temple and the festivals were pointing to. They were a shadow. Well, Jesus is the sun. Jesus is the climax of everything that God had promised his people and everything he had been preparing them for. The temple, the law, the festivals, all of those things were the opening act. And here Jesus was the headliner. This is vital for us to keep in mind if we want to understand why John tells the uh, story of Jesus the way that he does. That he foregrounds what the others backer. And it's especially true in our passage this morning. And there's four things we're going to look at today. The four C's. An alliterative tetrad. Truly one of the rare preacher's accomplishments. You know, usually it's a three-pointer, but today we get a four-pointer. And so while... It's always important, the first C is, is context. Um, 
And it's always important to us to understand the context of a scripture passage. It's particularly true today. So we're going to start with the context of what's going on at this festival. And then we're going to listen to what the cry of Jesus is. And then see the controversy that that sparked before looking at the consequences of receiving what Jesus promises. So context, cry, controversy, consequences. Let's go. So first is the context in which this episode occurs. And as I've said, with any scripture passage, you always want to understand the context. And one of my most simple interpretive rules for understanding scripture is this, that we read scripture in three dimensions for what is, you know, the world kind of behind the text, so the cultural context. The world in the text, so the, the, the narrative flow and where it sits within the canon of scripture. And then we read scripture in front of the text to have it interact with what's happening in our own hearts and in the world. But here, if we really dig down deep into Scripture, this is really rich for understanding Jesus' words. And so verse 37 begins, On the last day of the feast, the great day. So the first question is, what feast is it that we are talking about? Earlier in John chapter 7, we're told that Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem. And so when it comes to Jerusalem, because it's elevated, you always go up there. And he had gone up to celebrate the, the festival of booths or tabernacles, or Sukkot, as it's called in Hebrew. And this was one of the three major, major Jewish feasts, along with Passover and Pentecost, that, that all able-bodied uh, uh, Jewish males who lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem were expected to attend every year. Now, as Christians, we tend to think of Passover. That's the big one, because it's connected to Jesus' passion, to his death. And, and, and we read that story in, of Moses and, and rescuing the people of God from Egypt and, and the angel of the Lord passing over. But actually, the Festival of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, was the most popular feast in its day. It was referred, simply, referred to simply as the Feast. I think an analogous situation holds with our Christian holidays. Obviously, theologically speaking, Easter is the most important. But if we're being honest, probably most of us prefer Christmas. And all of the Jewish feasts had multiple layers of meaning. There was the tie to the agricultural year. There was a tie to salvation history. And then there's also a tie to eschatology on what that means more anon. But so first, there's the agricultural meaning. And, and, and so all of the feasts, the major feasts, were tied to the harvest cycle. And the Festival of Booze was the last harvest of the year, occurring sometime in late September, early to mid-October. And this was the season of the grape and olive harvest. And for that reason, it was associated with joy and plenty, wine and celebration. And the harvesting of these crops was, was time-sensitive, and so it required the harvesters to sometimes live in temporary shelters made out of palm branches called Sukkot in the fields as they were gathering the crop. And so because of this practice, this is one of the sources of the name of this festival. And the season in which the festival occurred also came near the end of the dry season. And so this was the time of year, especially if the festival occurred in the middle of October, where one could hope to see the first sign of rain of the season. The end of, of dryness and of drought. And so one of the themes of the festival was to pray for rain. So precious and so pr uh, precarious is rain in a region like Israel, where the people were keenly aware that water is life and that drought could be absolutely devastating. So Sukkot was connected with the harvest and a prayer for rain 
for water from the heavens. Then there's the salvation historical meaning. The booze or tabernacles were meant to remind the people of God of their years of wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years, their ancestors had been homeless, and God had provided for their every need. And so living in Sukkot, living in these temporary shelters, called to mind when the people had grumbled against Moses, and Moses struck the rock with his staff, and water flowed in the desert. That God provided for them even in the dry place. And finally, there's the eschatological meaning associated with the festival. And eschatology is a fancy but a useful theological term that means last things, pointing towards our ultimate hope and our ultimate future with God. And the prophet Zechariah spoke of the coming day of the Lord on which streams of living water would flow out of Jerusalem and would water the desert and bring forth life. And he even connected it to the festival of booze. And the prophet Ezekiel had a vision where the Lord showed him rivers of water streaming out of the temple and turning the Dead Sea of all places into a freshwater lake. We can see here the deep connection between the festival of tabernacles, Sukkot, and water on multiple levels. And not only that, but John says that Jesus' words occurred on the last day of the feast, the great day. So that would have been the seventh day on which the priest would have led the people out from the temple courts down to the pool of Siloam, drawing out water with a golden pitcher, and the people singing the words of Isaiah 12.3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. As they then processed back into the temple on the great day, the people would circle the altar seven times while the priest poured out the water upon the altar. All the while they were, would be waving palm fronds and branches the kind which they used to make their temporary shelters. And they would sing the words of Psalm 118. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, give us success. It was at this climactic moment of this great festival, pregnant with all of this meaning, all of this hope and significance, and and all of it tied to water, that Jesus cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we learned about the the context for Jesus' cry that day, on the great day of this great festival. But what about the content of it? The first thing that Jesus says is an invitation to anyone who thirsts. So that's the only qualification to receive what Jesus has to offer. It isn't any positive quality. It is simply a recognition of our lack. Our recognition that he has something that we don't. A thirst is simply a desire for something more. Something more to life. Something more to existence. Something more than what we've settled for. Something beyond ourselves. Something beyond what we can achieve beyond what we can even conceive as possible by our own power. To acknowledge our thirst and our need for Jesus, to satisfy it, is what Jesus means by whoever believes in me. We come to him, cup in hand, and ask him to fill it. And what Jesus offers isn't a drop. It isn't a trickle. It's a stream. A constant and abundant supply of his spirit. 
And more on the deeper meaning of that later. But suffice to say, here Jesus promises his Holy Spirit to whoever comes to him in faith. The Spirit's not a promise for super saints, the super spiritual. And if you've been doing life groups, you know, even though we weren't able to do the retreat on the Holy Spirit, one thing I I hope you took away if you're in life groups and watching those videos is this, that the Holy Spirit is for everyone. It's not just for Pentecostals. It's not just for charismatics. It's for anyone who asks for it. And for those of us not steeped in maybe the charismatic movement or theology, the Spirit can seem just plain weird. Or you wonder, well, Jesus promises this, but am I missing out on something? One of my favorite commentators, Dale Bruner, I love what he says about this in terms of a theology of the Spirit and potential Christian anxiety over whether or not I have it or whether or not I want to have it. He says this, In short, the kingdom, like the Spirit, is for people who feel not... Who, who not is for people not who feel they are worthy of it or him, who know all too well that they are not good enough to deserve it or him, and who bring only one disposition. I need you, Lord. And he then refers to a lesson he, he learned from the, a mentor of the great missionary statesman, Robert Speer, who actually uh, used to have the library at Princeton Seminary named after him. And he said this, I am now convinced that those Christians who are most filled with the Holy Spirit are those who are least conscious of it. All they know is that they want to serve Jesus Christ and they feel they are unprofitable servants. To such people belong the Spirit. So we've got the context and the content of the cry. And Jesus' cry is is simple, but it's profound. It only takes up one verse in our whole passage. These are Jesus' only words. But that alone sparks a controversy. There's a debate over the most important question of all. Who is Jesus? which for John is, is always a question related closely to another. Where does he come from? That's actually the central question that people are trying to figure out in this passage. Because if Jesus comes from God, then all bets are off. Then we have to take what he says and what he promises in our relation with him with the utmost seriousness. If Jesus is the word made flesh, that changes everything. And so we get to overhear this debate as it's occurring between the various parties in our passage with the differing responses from the crowd, the temple police, the religious leaders, and Nicodemus. And the people are divided. Is Jesus the prophet? A reference to Deuteronomy where Moses speaks of a prophet like himself who will come later. Or is he the Messiah, the rightful royal heir of of David's throne who would reestablish God's kingdom here on earth? If Jesus came from God, both of those were live options, even if we recognize they fall short of capturing the full implications of Jesus' identity. But then there are those who must misunderstand where Jesus really comes from. The Messiah can't come from Galilee. He had to come from Bethlehem. The irony, of course, is that we know that Jesus did come from Bethlehem uh, from an earthly perspective, but we also know that he came from somewhere much farther away than that. Some in the crowd are open to Jesus. Some want to arrest him. It wasn't in our reading, but earlier some of the religious leaders sent the police to arrest Jesus, and they didn't, uh, but the police didn't because they were astounded at the authority of his teaching. That's another common response to Jesus, to be astounded by his teaching, his authority, his mere presence. 
because there's no other figure like him in human history. His words strike us as the words of God because they have the ring of truth to them and of wisdom to them. I've never ceased to be amazed by Jesus. I find his whole persona alluring. It draws me in as it has millions and millions of people for centuries and centuries. So we have the crowds, we have the police, but then there's the religious leaders. And they're, the, they're indicative of elites in every age who despise or reject Jesus and those who follow him because they despise the common people. They consider themselves above the crowd, above the rabble, above here the people who they say are ignorant of God's law. But then we've got Nicodemus. We first met him back in John chapter 3 when he came to Jesus at night and had his conversation with him that sparked Jesus' teaching about being born again and it included John 3.16. Nicodemus defends Jesus here, if only tepidly, pointing out to these men who considered themselves experts in the Jewish law that they were condemning themselves because it prohibited them from accusing someone before, before hearing their side of things. And here we are reminded always of the importance of prejudging and the sanctity of due process. Bedrock principles in any just society. And nevertheless, Nicodemus appeals to a shared source of authority to defend Jesus. And the response is that he gets more abuse. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And on this point, the so-called legal experts are factually wrong. Jonah was from Galilee. Hosea was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. Elijah, Elisha, and Amos may have been from there as well. So here we see the danger of motivated reasoning and what we think we know and what we think is possible or reasonable blinding us from the truth. The high-level point of view is this. Wherever Jesus com- whenever Jesus comes up, there is bound to be controversy about who he actually is. Sometimes this controversy will be pointed, and and especially amongst the elites in any society, he is bound to face serious opposition because they are the ones who stand the most to lose from the way that he turns the world upside down. But the controversy and the conversation that Jesus sparks, they're not a bug, but a feature of his message. And so we're wise to not try to avoid the question, but ask yourself, who is this? Where does he come from? And don't be afraid when other people wrestle with that question as well. And ask them if they'd like to learn more. And now we've reached the fourth and final C. And that's this. What are the consequences of receiving the Holy Spirit? Of coming to Jesus and drinking the water he has to offer? There's so much that could be said, but I'll just start with three suggestions. The first is drinking this water, receiving the Holy Spirit. We gain satisfaction. It's not spiritual smugness, but the satisfaction that comes from finally discovering the truth that we've been looking for. Probably better to call this a deep peace. Secondly, the Spirit brings life. It it makes things alive, especially the promises of God. It it, it takes something that's maybe been in your head and moves it to your heart. A a truth that's been abstract and out there and it makes it concrete and solid, something you can hold on to. You don't just know in your head God loves you. You feel it in your heart. 
You don't just believe, yes, God forgives me of my sins, but, but the Spirit makes that truth alive to you, and so you feel that great release that comes when you're unburdened. You don't just forgive people in some kind of superficial way, but you really, really, really let go of things you've been holding on to for so long. And you actually find yourself starting to wish well for people who have hurt you or wronged you. And finally, Jesus talks about those who receive the Spirit having rivers of of life flowing out of their hearts. And so the Spirit transforms the world around us. And and so where people who, who have the Spirit, where they go, there is life, there is transformation, there is hope. The world is transformed just like Ezekiel and Zechariah saw it with with a desert having life. And Isaiah, (laughs) oh, come to the waters and drink. And and, and Joel, you know, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh in those days. Just like they promised. And so I'd say, you know, if you're a Christian and you haven't seen that, if nothing's different in your life, just take this opportunity to go to Jesus and say, I'm thirsty. I want what you're offering. I need you like the crops need the rain. I need you like the Israelites in the wilderness needed water from a rock. And I need you like the whole world does. I need you like the crowds did, like the Pharisees did, like the temple police did, like Nicodemus did. Pray, Lord, give me your Holy Spirit so that I can believe in you, belong to you, and become all that you have created me to be for your glory and for the good of this world that you love so much. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.